Our scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that'll be on page 965. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word, I pray that you would cause the spirit to work in our hearts to be able to receive the word, that we would go from here saying that we want you to use our ransomed life in any way you choose, and that we would be eager to share the gospel. And I pray that you would cause your spirit to work through Pastor Toby as he proclaims your word, give him power and boldness to speak your truth, God. And we pray all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Beliefs drive behavior. Now, I don't mean that what you might affirm as true in a conversation, you always do. I simply mean that whatever it is that you have latched onto, whatever it is your heart grasps as valuable, whatever you are trusting as true, not not. When someone asks you, well, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about uh, how a Christian ought to live? Well, anyone, any of us could give it the, the right answers to these things, right? But what we actually treasure as true will come out in how we live. Uh, there's a movie from a while back called Groundhog Day. And by your laughter, I understand you know this movie. Well, Phil Collins is Phil Connors, not Phil Collins, he's a drummer. Phil Connors is a weatherman who is in this small town living the same day over and over and over again. And one of these days, he's sitting in a bowling alley and he asks, you know, what if there were no tomorrow? And the guy answers, no tomorrow? That would mean there are no consequences. We could do whatever we want. And that strikes something in Phil, and he buys it because he's just lived the same day. He hasn't had a consequence to anything yet. This day he hasn't even become, you know, the next day isn't even the consequence of this day, much less anything else. So he starts to behave <coughs> in a way that he believes that. He robs, he robs people. He starts uh, taking advantage of people. He goes through this whole series where he's just doing awful behavior. Why? Because he believes there are no consequences. He'll wake up the next, he gets thrown in jail one of these days, but he wakes up right back in the same bed to live the same day over again. Beliefs drive behavior. If, if a person believes, for example, that they deserve certain things from others, their behavior will reflect it. Whether it's a child believing they deserve candy from the checkout line an employee believing she deserves something from her company, a husband believing he deserves certain things from his wife, those things will shape their behavior, particularly when they don't get what they think they deserve. When folks believe there is no God, no God who created us, who rules the universe, who holds all humanity accountable, 
their belief will show itself in the decisions they make, in the aim of their lives, in their view of money and marriage and friendship and work and a thousand other things. Beliefs drive behavior. Consider what Jesus said, right? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words are rooted in what our hearts treasure as true. A few chapters later in Matthew, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. What we treasure as true shapes how we will live our lives. Beliefs drive behavior. And the same is true when it comes to gospel ministry. What we believe about the nature of gospel ministry, how we define success, how we are convicted about our roles, this will shape how we behave, how we carry out ministry. Now, that's not just a theory. That's actually what we will see in Paul's teaching today. He begins uh, at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, which is no way to start any conversation. Right? It's like, it's like that meme where the, husband's, where the wife walks, the wife says, you weren't even listening to me, were you? And the husband replies, that's a strange way to start a conversation. Therefore is no way to start a conversation. It's a conclusion. And so as we look at this text, we're going to have to look back at what he's already said some in order to fully understand what he's saying here. But here's the main point. In gospel ministry, our beliefs drive our behavior. In doing gospel ministry, our beliefs drive our behavior. So let's first look at what Paul believes. Not all that he believes, but what he believes about gospel ministry. And there are three things to take note of. The first is that gospel ministry is a gift from God. Paul believes that. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, last week, Paul said that gospel ministry is greater than Moses' ministry because the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. That gospel ministry is greater, it has greater glory, it has greater power. And because of that, because of the grand view of gospel ministry that Paul has, Paul looks at himself and says, it's only by God's mercy that I even get to participate in this. He thinks of it as a gift. Now, isn't that an incredible way to talk about doing ministry? Paul's not saying he's stuck with it. Paul's not saying, well, nobody else is going to do it, so I guess I have to. He says God gave it to him, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, we talk about mercy as not receiving some bad thing, some punishment that we rightly deserve, right? That's a fair way to talk about mercy. When Paul talks about receiving this, mercy, receiving this ministry by the mercy of God... In essence, he's saying, here's what I deserve, to not have a single part in what God does in the world. I deserve to be left out. I deserve to be excluded. And yet, God counts me in. You ever thought about your ministry that way? He also, in Ephesians 3, says that his ministry is a gift of grace. Listen to Ephesians 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This grace was given. There is no sense in which Paul believes he deserves the ministry that he has. That he deserves to travel and plant new churches that he's the obvious choice for all of this work. In fact, in Philippians 3, he discards his whole resume and says, I'll throw it all away just to know Jesus. But he doesn't have any sense in which he deserves it. He sees 
gospel ministry, he sees doing ministry as a gift, a gift received from God, a gift he doesn't deserve. I wonder how you and I see ministry. Do you see it as a burden or as a blessing? Do you tend to sigh heavily when it's time to serve? Or does your heart begin to celebrate that you get to do something for the Lord today? I mean, gospel ministry can be hard, my goodness. Can I get an amen on that? Gospel ministry can be hard, and it can be quite demanding, and it can be quite time-consuming, and all of those things. But at the same time, this Paul who says he is poured out as a drink offering for the sake of the faith of others, he is empty so that others can be filled. He says, what a joy to be able to have this ministry. At the same time, We don't deserve to be God's means of taking his gospel anywhere. We don't have anything to offer that God needs. And yet he includes us. What a gift, what a blessing, what a merciful God to include us in his work. What if we saw every gospel opportunity that way? I remember uh, hearing a pastor talk about... uh, personal evangelistic encounters and just how uh, he found himself just kind of, uh, there were times he'd find himself working himself up, you know, to break the conversation into that. But then he would walk away from the conversation like, yes, thank you, Lord, for, for giving me the courage, giving me this, all these things. And he said, I started to pray that the Lord would give me uh, the, the emotions and the sensations that I have after sharing the gospel before I share the gospel. So that I'm not walking into it going, oh, and I'm going, yes, I get to walk into this. I get to do this for the Lord. I get to share the gospel. What if we saw it that way with our antagonistic coworkers or our rebellious children or with stubborn friends or with prodigal Christian brothers and sisters? What if we saw gospel ministry that way? That every opportunity we thanked God for the privilege of being his mouthpiece into someone else's life. It's a way not many people think about doing gospel ministry, isn't it? You want to get people really uncomfortable in any church, you talk about giving and you talk about your prayer life and you talk about evangelism. What about if we, what, what if the Lord stirred in us in such a way that when we talked about evangelism, we got eager. Ooh, how can can I grow in this? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'd love to grow in this. Tell me more. Throw me out there. Kick me out of the nest. Paul believes that gospel ministry is given by God. It's a gift. Second thing he believes is that gospel ministry is accomplished by God. Now you see this in the last sentence right before chapter 4. In the end of chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What? What comes from the Lord? Well, you just start running back and you'll see the new covenant in Jesus comes from the Lord. You'll see the hope in chapter 3, verse 12 comes from the Lord. The boldness in chapter 3, verse 12, comes from the Lord. The spiritual sight in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, comes from the Lord. The freedom from the veil in chapter 3, verse 17, comes from the Lord. The transformation from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ in in verse 18, comes from the Lord. And if you go back even further to the beginning of chapter 3, around chapter 3, verse 2, His sufficiency is from the Lord. Him being the aroma of Christ back in chapter 2, that's from the Lord. Him getting led in, in triumphal procession by Christ, that's from the Lord. It's just all from the Lord beginning to end. I mean, Paul can't make it happen. You and I can't make it happen. Did you know you can't actually make hope spring forth in somebody's heart? You can't rip the blinders off. There's no special speaker that can do that. 
Sadly, I get offers from evangelists all the time telling me how many people will come to Christ if I'll just invite them to come here and we'll promote it in the community. There's not the presence or the absence of an altar call at the end of a service that can make it happen. Well, how are people ever going to come to faith in Jesus if we don't tell them to come up to the front of the room? I suppose the same way people have been coming to Jesus long before Charles Finney was ever born. By repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and professing that faith in the waters of baptism. If you haven't professed your faith in the waters of baptism, you need to profess your faith in the waters of baptism. But, but no special altar call is going to do that. There's no set of songs that if we just play it just right and the microphone doesn't pop and the screens all go at the right time and there's beautiful scenery behind the words that we can make it happen. We can't make it happen. God accomplishes the work. God does the heavy lifting in gospel ministry. This is like me asking my toddler to help me with this really heavy crate, and I am he's got his hands on it, but I'm carrying it. It's not that we don't have our hands in the ministry. It's that we can't do the heavy lifting. And he says that even again in Chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, he sets spiritual blindness and spiritual sight in its proper context, which is in the spiritual realm. So verse 4, in their case, the God, those who are unbelieving, who are perishing, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has a hand in the blindness that fills the world today. He blinds minds so that people can't see the light, so that they can't see the glory of Jesus. Now, if Paul stopped there and just basically said, well, we do the best we can to fight Satan, but that's about all we can do, well, then we'd be really, uh, we'd be really stuck, wouldn't we? But he actually includes verse 6, which is wonderful, because not even Satan can stop the Lord's work from going forward. Chapter, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very thing that Satan himself blinds us to, God gives us eyes to see it, and nothing can stop the Lord. When he reaches his hand of grace down to just pull back the blinders, there is nothing the enemy can do about it. That's good news. There's not this, there is a, there's a, there's a philosophy of, from long, long ago, Zoroastrianism, which basically, it's like Star Wars, all right? Just, if you can't remember that, just remember Star Wars, all right? There's, there's uh, the dark side of the force and there's the light side and they fight against one another and you never know who's going to win. And this is the image of God and of Satan kind of tug-of-warring back and forth and who's going to win. Dear friends, God wins. If you, don't, if you don't have your minds wrapped around that, just read the book of Revelation this afternoon, beginning to end, and you'll see where the winner lies and you'll see where Satan ends up. So as you walk into that personal evangelistic encounter, you can know that Satan is very interested in what's going on. He'd much rather the blinders be on there. But as you faithfully share the gospel with that friend, just know that the moment that God wants to take the blinders off, the blinders come off. And that's it. And the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, shines. Glory breaks in. Heaven came down and glory filled the soul. And that's what Paul believes. That the God who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis 1, shone into the heart, his heart, into the hearts of all those who believe. So that what Isaiah prophesies in chapter 9 verse 2 comes true. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, deep darkness, on them has light shone. Friends, this is why our prayer lives in evangelism are much more effective than our apologetic studies. It's much more effective than our well-crafted arguments, though God may use such things within the course of a person coming to faith. The power is not in the apologetic. The power is not in the argument. The power is in the Lord who says, let light shine. So in prayer, we recognize that only God can do this work, and we ask Him to do what only He can do. And do you know what He loves? He loves to answer that prayer. I mean, the Bible talks about heaven rejoicing when a sinner comes home. The Lord loves to answer that prayer. Now, yes, God gives us a role, doesn't He? We speak. We even live our lives in such a way that the light of Jesus shines forth from our good deeds. That's what Matthew 5 says. Jesus says, you are the light of the world to His disciples. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But God alone can say, let there be light. God alone makes the words that we say and the lives that we live effective in as means by which others see the light. No more darkness, no more night. Paul believes gospel ministry is a gift from God. Paul believes gospel ministry is accomplished by God. And Paul believes that gospel ministry is focused on Jesus. So you'd think that that goes without saying. But friends, every generation of Christians must continue to clarify this over and over and over again. The gospel is a message about Jesus. It centers on Him, who He is, and what He has done. So in chapter 4, verse 4, the gospel itself is the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you look back in chapter 2, well, how does he describe gospel ministry in verse 14? That through us... God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. As we go about doing gospel ministry, the fragrance of Christ goes everywhere. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are saved and among those who are perishing. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit came to do, was to continue the work of Jesus applying the finished work of Jesus to the hearts and lives of individuals, shaping churches, all of these things, building churches, planting churches. So the Spirit actually comes because Jesus completes the work of redemption and then sends Him along with the Father. So John 16, Jesus teaches His disciples this. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, speaking of His death and resurrection and ascension, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. So when you're talking about the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit loves to shine the spotlight on Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. As you see the Spirit of God working in the book of Acts, what is He doing? He is not bringing people to the Spirit, though they are one in essence. He's bringing people to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has died and been raised again and rules and reigns and will return. And then chapter 3, verse 14, it is only through Christ that the veil is taken away. So that's what Paul believes about gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is a gift from God. Gospel ministry is accomplished by God. Gospel ministry focuses on Jesus. And those beliefs shape how he behaves. So let's see how he behaves. He tells us how he behaves. First, so how Paul behaves, that's our second big heading. He behaves in this way. He serves with courage. 
Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, the verb lose heart has a range of meanings. It's basically about uh, losing spirit. So it can be translated as be discouraged or disheartened. But it also can mean to lose your fortitude, to, to be timid. And here, Paul has already said, because we have this hope, chapter 3, verse 12, we are very bold. And so he's coming along here to say, because we have this ministry, essentially he's saying, because we have this ministry, we are very bold again. But he's saying, we do not lose heart. We are not timid. We are not faint-hearted cowards. Well, what's the proof here? The proof begins in verse 2. It may not seem like it, but the proof comes in verse 2. Because it took me a while. I was sitting there, and I'm looking at the word but at the beginning of verse 2. I'm just like, Paul, what are you saying? What are you doing here, Paul? Why that? Can I get a, better, can I get a different uh, transitional phrase here? What he's contrasting is being courageous, not losing heart in verse 1, with the kind of behavior that he describes in verse 2. So how do we know he doesn't lose heart? Look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That second half is basically a restatement of we don't lose heart. By the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Everyone can see we are very bold. But he contrasts it with what's in the first half. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He separates himself from anything that will bring shame on gospel ministry. He just simply forbids it. It's a word, uh, the, the word renouncing has a prefix that means away. He sends it away. He shuns it away. He forbids it. He stays as far away from it as possible. He says he doesn't practice, we refuse to practice cunning, which is a word for deceit. It's actually a word that describes the devil himself later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's not going to deceive anybody, and he's not going to tamper with God's Word. Uh, this is a word that basically means that um, there were people in the marketplace who would take wine and they would water it down and sell it as if it were pure. He says, we don't do that. When it can either mean to take away or to add to whatever it is. So uh, last month when we left for Guatemala, we were in the Indianapolis airport, and I bought one of these tall smart water bottles because I knew that Randy and Brenda in Guatemala had a water bottle, and I'd just be able to fill it up all week. So I buy this large bottle, and I start to read it. And when you read it, not only does it talk about how natural it is, which I've never met a water bottle that said it was unnatural water. However, it talks about how natural it is. And then it says that they one-upped nature by adding electrolytes for better taste. Isn't that a phrase? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? They one-upped nature. Do you know that many people would tell us that we kind of need to one-up the gospel if we're going to improve the taste today? Because the palates of most people are averse to sin and judgment and the need for repentance and trusting and following and surrendering yourself to the Lord. This is... And so people say, well, what we need to do is we need to one-up the gospel. We need to add to it, or we need to take away from it. But you see, whether you add or subtract, add to or subtract from the gospel, you subtract from the glory that it has. So now if you, if 
you piece that together, when we lose heart, when we become timid, we shy away from preaching the gospel as it is and start trying to make it more palatable, more appealing, make it something our friends can accept without any pushback. You know, just vaguely talk about the fact that God is love. Avoid things like sin. Avoid the cross. Dear friends, it is true. The cross is foolishness to people who don't believe. But it's the only thing that will reconcile people to God. We cannot tamper with the gospel. We can't be deceptive. We can't use shameful methods. We can't try to manipulate people thinking if we manipulate them enough, they'll come to believe rightly and all will be well. You can't manipulate someone into the kingdom of God. You can't manipulate faith into the heart of any human being. You can sit down with your four-year-old and tell them to repeat after you as many times as you want, but that won't make faith spring out in their heart. No, 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 Paul says. We serve with courage. We don't practice shame. We're not underhanded. We're not deceitful. We don't add anything to the gospel and we don't take anything away from the gospel. We simply preach the gospel as it is. Second way Paul behaves is that he serves with humility. He doesn't just serve with courage, he serves with humility. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim, he doesn't even begin with what he proclaims. Did you see this? He doesn't begin with what he proclaims. He begins with what he doesn't proclaim. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Now, what would it mean if someone were to preach myself? If I were to preach myself, what would that actually look like? It doesn't actually always mean that I stand up and only talk about me. Though that is quite possible. And it happens. Essentially, the, the substance of preaching self is to preach in such a way that the spotlight is on me. That I am what matters here. Even if I am preaching not about me, my aim is to get you to focus on me. I'd really like you to like everything that I'm doing. I'd like you to go home and just say, man, that Toby. I'd just love for you to just go home and just treasure Toby in your heart. That's preaching self. That's what it would look like. One commentator says, To preach oneself is to vaunt one's superior qualifications, to put on airs, to turn the throne of Christ into a soapbox from which to spout one's pet ideas. Shame on any man who would stand in a pulpit in order to make the throne of Christ into a soapbox. Same man goes on to say that, that actually churches can feed this temptation. He says, the temptation to preach ourselves is fed by congregations who are prone to like to be entertained and to enjoy a minister's self-exaltation and are prone to indulge in a personality cult. Isn't that precisely what was happening in Corinth? You remember the beginning of the first letter? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Oh, well, I'm of Christ. And later Paul says he can't even talk to them like spiritual people. I can't even talk to you like Christians because of all of this. All this personality cult. 
Look, in a world of social media and, and even I'm very aware of our video going out there, um, we have to be very careful that the focus of what we put out in video, the focus of what we do online has to not be about any single individual. I mean, it is sad to hear pastors being interviewed in podcasts talking about building a platform for themselves because they really have something to say. And I'm certain they're trying to be well-intentioned, but this is just... It does not strike me right. I cannot read the heart of my brother and tell you he's intending to exalt himself, but I'll just tell you I, I cringe at the idea of building a platform for myself because I know how likely I am to just plunge right off of it, to just make a fool of myself, to make a shame of the gospel, to bring shame on this church. I do not want that. And the moment it seems, listen, if you're a Gray Road member, you listen. The moment it seems that that's what's happening, you better start talking about it to me and to the elders. You got it? Can we agree to that? Paul says, I don't preach myself. Paul doesn't exalt himself. Paul isn't in gospel ministry to build a platform for himself. Do you know why? Because he knows who he is. 1 Corinthians 3, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now what would that look like in personal evangelism, this whole idea of preaching self. Like in your gospel conversations, what would that look like? Well, it might look like engaging my friend in conversation so that I can prove my intellect, so that I can win an argument, so that I can be shown to be right, so that I can outsmart you. It also may look like only being interested in you as a human being so long as you could possibly be an evangelistic notch in my belt. But the moment I see I'm not going to get what I want, I am no longer interested in you as a person. Anytime our egos take center stage, any attitude or strategy that ultimately... My greatest sense is that I'm going to be, I'm going to feel great about this. I'm going to win them. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. That's preaching self. And Paul refuses to do it. In fact, look at the end of verse 5, what he says. He says, uh, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Better word is slaves. Ourselves, this is the only time Paul says this about being a slave to another person. He talks about being a slave of Jesus. But here he is. He says, I'm a slave to you for Jesus' sake. Now, if any of you ever watched that show on, uh, I don't even know what channel it came on because we watched it on Netflix, I think, uh, Downton Abbey. It's this aristocratic family with all these servants and when any time somebody would come to be a guest to them, if they didn't have servants of their own, the servants of Downton Abbey would go and serve them. The servants would go and do all of the things, help them dress, make sure they have this, make sure they have that, all of that. They would do that for the sake of the family that they served. Not for the guest's sake primarily, but for the family's sake. And it's like that in gospel ministry. We serve other people for Jesus' sake. We serve Jesus by serving other people. When we serve other people, our hearts need to be aimed at serving Jesus, pleasing Jesus, honoring Jesus. 
Not, so not preaching ourselves, not focusing on ourselves, not believing we need to be the ones served here, but with humility serving others for Jesus' sake. Paul serves with humility. And the last thing we see about his behavior is that Paul focuses on Jesus. Well, that's clear, isn't it? I left out the middle phrase of verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. He says it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus is the focus of Paul's ministry. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he's saying, let me remind you of something I said, and as long as you keep believing it, then your faith isn't in vain, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's the sweetest name that Paul knows. It's the only name he's going to preach when he's with you. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that humanity has some great problems, don't they? I mean, just this weekend, shooting in Texas. This new mobile shooting, just going, for, just going on a shooting spree, not even in one place, but moving around. A hurricane is poised to strike Florida in the next couple of days. There's poverty, there's violence, there's greed, there's racism, there's war, there's corruption in governments, there's corruption in businesses, there's all of these horizontal problems. And we could spend our whole lives on all of these horizontal problems. And they all matter, but they're all rooted in a vertical problem. They're all rooted in the fact that man is at odds with God, that sin has broken our relationship with God, that the whole world and all of life is ultimately lived under a curse that won't fully and finally be lifted until the very end. But we have the news that tells us about the curse being taken away. You see, God tells us what it means to live as those made in His image, but we won't do it. And beyond that, we can't do it. We are hopeless and we are helpless. But Jesus Christ enters the world, the true image of God, the exact representation of His nature, God in the flesh, and He obeys the law at every point, the only human being perfectly acceptable to God, so that God looks at Him at His baptism and says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Left there, Jesus is the only one who would ever hear the Father say that. And He completely obeyed the Father all the way to the cross where the completely obedient one takes on the complete disobedience of us. And He bears our sin and He dies in our place so that we, so that we could hear the Father say, You are my beloved ones. With you, I am well pleased. But not because of you. Because you are in Christ. Because the righteousness of Jesus Christ makes you well pleasing to God. Nothing else you do will please God. Everything done apart from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Even the good things we do are filthy rags. But in Jesus Christ, we are well-pleasing to God. He died for us. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death and the devil. Jesus, our crucified, risen Lord, guaranteeing eternal life for all who turn and trust in Him. All. If you don't know Him, if you are not trusting in Him, 
That all includes you if you will turn and trust in him today. There, Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Jesus is the focus of gospel ministry. I wonder if you were on an elevator with someone and you had a 60-second elevator ride and they somehow knew you were a Christian. They saw, your, they saw you were carrying a Bible. Oh, I see you're carrying a Bible. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Well, what does that mean? I wonder what you would say in those 60 seconds. What would you say about Jesus? Because it matters what you would say. We are not the mouthpiece of God in the conversion of men and women when we begin to talk about, well, being a Christian basically means, I mean, I read my Bible, I go to church, I, you know, I, I've been baptized, I, um, I, I believe in God, I, I do my best to live according to the Bible, all these things. And we can get so flustered in those moments that we just, we completely go for all the peripheral things when the light of Jesus is right there. And you have the opportunity to grab the handlebars on, the, uh, on the, uh, uh, the, the spotlight and say, well, let me show you what being a Christian is about. It has nothing to do with me. You see, I've completely dishonored and disobeyed God. But because God is loving and merciful and gracious, He sent Jesus to die in my place. And by His grace, He opened my eyes so I could see how awful I was and I could see how wonderful Jesus is and I could see the forgiveness that was available to me and I turned from my sin and I trusted in Him. And you can do the very same thing before we get to floor six. What would you say? If you don't know, write something this week. Just write it down. Write two paragraphs, what you'd say on an elevator. If someone asked you about what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't want to wait for that elevator ride, you can turn to Jesus right now where you're at. In your heart, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. See his glorious salvation and run to him. Throw open the arms of your heart and embrace him as Savior. And if you want to talk more, every single person around you would love to. And so would I. And you can come if you believe in Jesus. And we'll talk about what it means to be baptized. And you can profess your faith in Jesus through baptism. You see, in gospel ministry, our beliefs drive our behavior. So let me connect the dots for you. If we believe that gospel ministry is a gift from God then we'll serve with courage. Because it's not ours. It's not ours to win or lose. It's not ours to take up. It's a gift. We won't lose heart. If we believe that gospel ministry is accomplished by God, we'll serve with humility. We won't preach ourselves. We'll just say, I'm just a slave for Jesus' sake. And if we believe that gospel ministry is focused on Jesus, we'll focus on Jesus. In doing gospel ministry, beliefs drive our behavior. Question. What do you believe about doing gospel ministry? Because if you believe it's for other people, you know what you're not doing? Gospel ministry. If you believe it's for the professionals, you're not doing it. If you believe you have to be studied for years and years before you can begin to share the gospel, then you're either not doing it or you're only studying. 
If you believe that someone else's conversion is based on how clever you are, you are working on your cleverness. What do we really believe about gospel ministry? Better yet, what does our behavior say we believe? Because our beliefs drive our behavior. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, recognizing that what our hearts treasure as true determines how we live in all things and in doing the work of gospel ministry. We thank you that in your mercy, you give us the gift of serving you by serving others. You give us the gift of doing gospel ministry. And so we pray that because we have this mercy, by, we have this ministry by your mercy, we will not lose heart. Father, we recognize once again that you alone do the heavy lifting of gospel ministry. You alone open eyes and change hearts and forgive sin and give life. You do that through us, but you do it. And so we pray you'll help us to serve with humility. We pray you'll help us to really believe that so we will serve with humility. And Father, we recognize once again that from before the foundations of the world, your plan was to exalt Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And the totality of your word points to Jesus. And the gospel centers on Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit magnifies and exalts and glorifies Jesus and brings people to Jesus. We pray we'll really believe that gospel ministry focuses on Jesus so that we will focus on Jesus. Help us to, in this way, follow the example of your servant Paul. Help us to not be shameful, to use cunning, to tamper, but to speak openly with courage and humility so that people see Jesus in how we speak and so the light of Jesus shines in how we live. And we ask that you might use those things so that, so that people who've been deaf to it and blind to it will hear, let light shine out of darkness. And that they will see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. Make us a church faithful to engage the world with the gospel through partnerships with missionaries and by taking the gospel to the end of the street. We ask it all in Jesus' name.